Welcome to the next episode of the Student Talk Security Podcast Series. My name is Kenzie Phillips, and I'm a first-year fellow with the Notre Dame International Security Center and a second-year political science student. Today, we have a really exciting episode with Erin Connolly to talk about nuclear policy and women in security. Erin Connolly is the Associate Program Director for Girls Security and a fellow at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, where she previously worked as a research assistant. She has created modules for high school girls on topics such as national security, nuclear non-proliferation, working at the nexus of policy and public engagement. She connects education, national security, and personal security to cultivate the next generation of innovative policy leaders. Anne has written on topics including nuclear terrorism, Iran, North Korea, and next generation engagement. Erin is currently pursuing a master's in global affairs and international peace studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs and Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. As part of this program, Erin is working with King's College London Center for Science and Security Studies from July to December of this year, where she is focusing on nuclear arms control. So, hey, Erin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into security? Hello. Uh, first, thanks for having me on. And to tell you, I think you've covered it pretty well in my bio. That's pretty much all there is. I'm a second year master's student at Notre Dame. And while doing this, I'm pursuing work with girl security, which focuses on closing the gender gap in national security. And prior to this, I focused on nuclear non-proliferation. And it's something I keep coming back to in my King's research, but also through girl security as well. And so how I entered the field is a good question. I went to college to become a teacher, took one education course and realized that was really not going to work out for me. And I was taking a national security course, took, was really interested in Iran and the negotiations that were going on at the time. And I literally Googled arms control internships in Washington, D.C. and just applied to everything I saw and was fortunate enough to get a spot at the Center for Arms Control and Immigration. And then I was really fortunate that a job opened up with them in the Fiscal Materials Working Group uh, that summer after I graduated. And so after that, I was pretty much hooked. And I've been there ever, I've been there ever since, and I'm actually still affiliated with them, which is really wonderful. Um, as I go through my master's in girls' security work, it's been nice to stay engaged. So I got asked, what is something that people always find shocking when it comes to nuclear policy and or uh, security? That's a good question. Um, I think the thing that I've come across the most is that everyone assumes we have a shield uh, that will protect us from incoming nuclear missiles or other missiles and uh, kind of, I just picture something like the Avengers coming out of the sky, Um, but that's not quite what we have. The U.S. has, um, we were in a treaty with Russia to not have a national missile defense system. We withdrew in 2001 uh, and have spent about $70 billion creating a national system. It works about 50% of the time in scripted tests, meaning they know the trajectory of the missile. They only do it when it's sunny and there's not a lot of wind. There's not really any decoys. Um, And I don't think it's shocking to think that North Korea or any other adversary would let us know when they're going to launch a missile and only do it on a sunny day. But uh, in those circumstances, it works less than half the time. And so I think that's something that's quite surprising which goes into the other more nuclear focused thing, which is that we're going to spend over $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years modernizing the nuclear arsenal. Uh, And that doesn't include the missile defense 70 billion. So a lot of money on these weapons that we hope to never use. And there's a really big debate right now about whether or not it's worth it and where we should be spending our money. And so I think those are the 
two interesting tidbits I would offer. So everyone's talking about advanced technologies and it has completely changed the makeup of new mission areas and strategies, more specifically the emergence and development of advanced technologies like AI, cyber drones, cloud computing, data analytics, and hypersonic missiles. Uh, do you see advanced technology kind of changing um, or upsetting the global nuclear balance? That's a really uh, prescient question that you ask because I think em emerging technology is like the word of the time right now. Uh, and I think there's a big debate over what emerging technology actually means. And I think the first thing to remember is that emerging technology and nuclear weapons is not necessarily new. Like the technology has constantly been evolving since it was first invented. And AI is also Siri in your phone. It's the satellites that tell you directions if you're like me and are really directionally challenged. <laughs> um, and so I think it's important to remember that there are levels to this. And I think that new technologies will be quite destabilizing depending on how they're applied. And so if you look at artificial intelligence, if this is put into command and control, which is the way we actually launch nuclear weapons, that could be quite destabilizing because of what it would do to decision-making time. And so right now, by some estimates, the president has about seven minutes to decide whether or not to launch a nuclear weapon once they're informed that there's an incoming nuclear attack. Seven minutes is not a very long time, and there's concern that emerging technologies would actually shorten that time even further and what that might do in terms of uh, involving AI and that kind of uh, information analysis to give the president more time is a possibility. Uh, and so that's something that we are kind of navigating as we go and command and control is a really hard thing to get an inside look on. And then uh, hypersonics are also very of the moment. And so just a quick thing about hypersonics is hypersonics are missiles that go above Mach 5. It's really fast. Current intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs, which are part of the US nuclear force. So we, we have ICBMs, submarine launched uh, and bombs dropped from airplanes. So we have the triad, we can deliver nuclear weapons three ways. ICBMs and also those launched from submarines reach about Mach 24 at their max speed when they're coming back into the atmosphere. And so for hypersonics, the difference is not the speed, it's the idea that hypersonics don't have to leave the atmosphere to reach the speed. So they launch and then they stay um, at an altitude below most radars for missile defense. And so there's concerns that, you can't see all my hand motioning in the podcast, I realized. <laughs> um, there's concern that uh, we'll have shortened warning of when those missiles are, are um, on their way. And they're also more maneuverable, meaning that you can kind of guide them as they go, which would likely lead to increased accuracy. Um, and so I think that is something that's definitely of concern. And the idea that hypersonics are being developed for conventional and nuclear purposes. So if you see hypersonics coming, you're not entirely sure if there's a nuclear weapon attached or not. And so that uh, might also cloud decision making as well. And so I think it's a really good question that you ask about the impact of emerging technologies because so much of it will be A, how it's applied and B, countries' abilities to engage in conversations now. Like, can they pledge to not have nuclear hypersonics? Is that something countries are willing to do is a really important question. Yeah, I mean, I can tell that you've taken some classes on education because you're so great at explaining to me these like really complex advanced technologies. So I guess just kind of leading off of that, 
Um, given that you're in nuclear policy right now, how did you end up working in public education? Well, I come from a family of teachers, so I think it was just a matter of time. It's <laughs> um, a really good question. I, at the Center for Arms Control, I focused on educating members of Congress and their staff on nuclear weapons issues and nuclear security issues. Um, and while doing that, I noticed that there was often an information gap between offices that had incentives to know about nuclear weapons because they had missile bases, submarine bases, uh, even national laboratories in their district versus those that didn't. And so I, um, a colleague that I met at a nuclear happy hour called Gin and Atomics, which is for young people interested in nuclear policy. It's really nerdy, um, but a great thing. So if anyone's interested, I can get them on the list. Um, and we met and she was from a high school out west that their mascot was a mushroom cloud and still is a mushroom cloud. And so we thought it'd be really interesting to do nuclear weapons education out there and kind of start incentivizing informed decision making by talking to constituents, high school students who will be voting um, about nuclear issues. And because assuming that someone needs to go to college to be informed on that is quite elitist, we're all able to vote when we turn 18. And if a nuclear war happens, we're all going to be affected. And so it's important that we all have a voice. And so we went to, it was four days, 1,100 students. I lost my voice. She lost her voice. It was great. Uh, and that's kind of, ever since then, I've been hooked. And I found Girl Security. They found me through Twitter. And then that kind of really hooked me into the public education space. Yeah, it's interesting how you kind of brought up the gap. Um, today's national security challenges are obviously proving very complex boosting budgets, restructuring agencies. Um, it's just all such a growing challenge. However, I believe there's one area that could improve and could even help us um, when it comes to facing a lot of these challenges. And that's kind of improving the gender diversity and leadership teams. In business, it's no longer controversial to propose the idea that gender diversity can produce better results. Um, even in finance, according to an IMF study, women's participation in the bank and um, regulatory boards increase financial stability. So kind of like, why is it so controversial to propose for more active roles for women in national security? And what is your view and experience of the current woman representation in U.S. national security? There is a lot in that question. Um, I, so I will start with the controversial aspect. And I think it is really uh, important that you highlighted the private sector, because I think the private sector is an increasingly important part of national security, especially as you talk about emerging technologies, a huge amount of AI advancement is happening in the private sector. And so their acknowledgement of the importance of including not just women in terms of diversity, but uh, racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, that broad range is really critical as we're creating technologies that we might, that people are talking about using for decision making to make sure that those decisions are not biased. You have to have a diverse amount of views. And so I think it's not necessarily controversial to include women in security. I think there is some who fear women won't be able to keep up because of other obligations, personal obligations, um, that there's only limited spots for women, or if you include more women, other people lose their platforms. So I think the national security space is quite uh, elite and no one wants to risk losing their spot. And so I think that has been a difficult thing to create space for. 
Um, but I also think it's important that we step beyond just adding women and stirring is an approach I heard in a webinar and it fit it perfectly. Like adding women's not enough and you have to meaningfully integrate per different perspectives. Um, and you have to actually shift policies and structures so that those can be integrated. And I think that's a really important aspect of this that isn't talked about enough. Like, of course, including women, people of different uh, racial and different backgrounds is really important, but it, you have to do something, you have to allow their perspectives to have an impact um, and to really sit at the table, but also speak at the table. Um, and in my experience of the current representation in women in security is it's getting better. Um, just in my short time in the field over the past five years, um, has there's been a huge improvement. Um, but I think they're still struggling with retention. And I don't think it's just retention of women. I think it's retention of all different kinds of diversity because the space is not made for that. And it's difficult to, there's a lot of different uh, programs and initiatives now about culture in the field, uh, especially dealing with sexual harassment. That's been a huge issue and making sure that women have a support network to turn to, but also know how to confront that I think is really important and making sure that those structures are in place so that women can succeed. Um, there's actually a really interesting, Michelle Flournoy, who is seen to be as a shoe-in for Secretary of Defense, if Biden wins, had said that she with her team did flex hours. And so that men and women, if they had to like pick up their kids or do doctors or whatever they need to do, and there was a huge difference in productivity. And it's like these small shifts in culture that allowed more diverse workforce to actually thrive that are really important as we move forward. That's super interesting. Yeah, like I've noticed um, women like you obviously have power to the top um, in some of these areas in national security, yet not enough women have made it to these leadership roles in America to reap the benefits of gender diversity in their workspace. So do you believe, I guess you kind of alluded to it earlier, but more bluntly, do you believe achieving gender balance in foreign policy is good for national security? Most definitely. And I think um, gender balance is important because as the people with different experiences ask different questions and national security is about being prepared for all circumstances. And so it was really interesting for girl security. We have the, uh, one of our programs that we did, there's this woman who does predictive analysis and she applies it to national security, but a huge part of it is just using your imagination to figure out what could possibly go wrong in national security. And there are really different questions that people ask given your experience and our board uh, chair at Girl Security shows this really um, good story, a really interesting story. She worked in intelligence. And if you, the experience of young women and all women is you know that nothing can ever be 100% secure because our own bodies aren't secure. Like, if I can't secure my own physical security, how are you going to secure the physical security of a country? But like, that is what a lot of national security experts have sought to do up until now. They're looking for 100% security when women already realize that's not possible. So instead of trying to get that, you should be increasing resilience and the ability of a, uh, the US public to respond if there is a security breach. And of course, preparing to try and avoid those, but being prepared in case it does happen is really important. Um, and girl security calls this an unsought aptitude for girls, where you just have this inherent resilience because of what you do going through everyday life. 
And so I think having that perspective is really critical for our own national security resilience. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially since half of today's international affairs graduate students are female and they do make up a good portion of the entry level ranks in our field. Um, and it's also, it shouldn't be easy to say that you obviously probably stand out in your field, um, considering such a small percentage of you make up um, professionals worldwide. So kind of just more on a personal take, uh, what kind of obstacles have you encountered in your years as a professional to kind of get to where you are today? That is a tricky question. Um, so I think, first, I think everyone at entry level in the field has obstacles. I think men, women, anything you are, it's hard to break into different fields. Uh, you're kind of drinking from a fire hose when you first start because you can take classes on things, but when you get there, it's a whole different ball game. Uh, and so I think it is, you just have to kind of mentally prepare yourself for that and having a really good uh, horizontal peer network is really important for that and just having a space to kind of bounce ideas off of and support you in that. But I think in terms of entering the field as a young woman, it was difficult because I didn't really think about being a woman until I was in the field, if that makes sense, because I grew up with all girl on my block. Like I just, it never occurred to me that being the only female in a room would make a difference um, until it was assumed that I was always the intern or that I would be the one taking all the notes and not participating. Or um, there's this one memory that really sticks out when I, I had been working and we had an event for Hill staff to talk about nuclear modernization or um, the nuclear posture review, I think, which is about the, it basically just tells you what an administration wants to do with nuclear weapons and what they believe they're for and what they're gonna prioritize. It's a very long document. And so we had someone talk to uh, Hill staffers about the like top lines and priorities and things like that. And afterwards, there was a few people who kind of hung around to like chat and just hang out. Um, it was like a 7 p.m. event, so where were we gonna go? And the person who, it was me and five other guys, and the guy who had spoken at the event was talking about the really niche process of converting submarine launched ballistic missile launchers so that they were in compliance with the New START Treaty which just a plug for the New START Treaty is the last treaty between the US and Russia limiting their um, caps on nuclear weapons. And it's going to expire in February 2021 in case if the Trump administration doesn't agree to extend it. So that's like the huge hill to die on right now for the nuclear field. But this was years ago and everyone just assumed <laughs> it extended. Um, and we were really going into the nitty gritty of that. And I had no idea because I, that was not my area. And also I was still drinking from the fire hose and trying to learn. And so I had made a comment because um, I wanted to participate in the conversation. And so they're talking about the conversion and how it works and where it's happening. And it turns out where it's happening was really close to where I grew up. And so I said that, and the guy looked at me and goes, way to contribute to the conversation, Erin. And I was no. just like, hey, and I responded back something that I shouldn't say on a podcast and I probably shouldn't have said anyways. And he thought it was kind of amusing that I snapped back at him without really? thinking, which could have been a mistake, but thank God he thought it was amusing and we like went from there. 
But it was just one of those moments where the field really works on trying to support young people, but that doesn't mean everyone does. And then also he thought of himself as someone who was really supportive of next gen. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> my experience has been different. But I think it's like the little things like that, that constantly, um, like they wear you down and you have to make sure that you have the confidence, but also the support to keep going. Because of course, everyone's confidence gets shaken. And if I didn't have friends that I could laugh about that with, I might have taken it a bit more personally. Mm-hmm. But it did affect the way I engaged moving forward. Like if I was going to say something or should I wait and see? Uh, and it's important that what you say should matter, but also being aware of how it makes you seem. So I think that was something that was I did not expect it. And I, all the men in the room, no one said anything. There's, yeah. So I think that was a very informative experience for me. So I know when you describe your work, you talk about it with a lot of passion. And obviously you kind of experienced a lot of these obstacles, whether you could say it on these podcasts or not. Um, But I guess my question, kind of my final question to you is, what would you say to a group of young women who have not considered a career in security due to lack of knowledge or lack of experience? That's a really important question. And I think I personally ended up in nuclear weapons policy and national security by accident because I didn't know it was an option. I grew up in a small town where you became a teacher, lawyer, doctor, or you went to technical school. Um, And so I think for those who are interested in entering the field, definitely um, internships are a really good way to go. There's a really wonderful push in the field to make sure all internships are now paid, which is also a critical facet of making sure the field is more diverse. It's it's not just people who can afford to do unpaid internships, but it's others as well. And so I'd highly encourage that. And my best advice for working in national security is to find your tribe. And so it's the group of people, um, it was, there was five of us young women, we called ourselves the women of mass destruction in our little group chat. Love it. Uh, And they were the ones who got me through. They were really critical in providing feedback for ideas and telling me if my idea was a little bit too far-fetched or if it was an idea that, yeah, like you should write on that and I'll like review your op-ed before you publish it. Um, And just a support group when you need it is really, really important. And I think horizontal networks are highly undervalued uh, in terms of like networking, because I I remember went to college, I thought I hated networking. And then I realized networking is not about asking for things. It's about meeting people and hearing their story. And I think that makes networking a lot less scary um, because people are interesting. But your horizontal network is really important. And I think just focusing on building bridges and communities wherever you go is critical and so making sure you're talking to the people you don't necessarily agree with but understand why it is that you disagree will make you a better analyst it'll make you a better communicator it'll make you a better researcher just being aware that existing in your bubble is not a good option for national security or really any field that you pursue but i just really want to encourage people to get out of their bubble because it really helps ground you in what you're doing Um, And for me, that was really helpful talking to high school students because they ask the hardest questions. Um, I had one student who we talked about nuclear weapons 101 and we talked about Iran, North Korea. And they were like, so if we all sanctioned Iran, why did no one sanction the US for getting nuclear weapons? 
And I think it's a really good way to step back and question your basic assumptions. <laughs> um, and so I would just suggest building your horizontal network, stepping out of your bubble and creating your community. Uh, yeah, so I know you're highly involved with uh, girl security. And uh, obviously, a lot of our listeners on here are probably very sought after college students. So I just have a little plug question. So how can students at Notre Dame get involved at girl security? Love a good plug. Um, so girl security is just a quick, for those who don't know, it's a nonpartisan organization working to close the gender gap in national security. And we have what we call a C model. So we secure with information, empower uh, with simulations and advance through phase mentorship network. So step one to getting involved is definitely signing up. You can sign up to be a mentor and a mentee. So like you would be a mentor to someone in high school and we would pair you with someone who's one step ahead of you because it's a phase mentorship network. So I think that's a really great way to kind of sustain engagement because also like pairing a high school student with a senior official is not the most viable. <laughs> I think making sure that people can connect with their mentor is really important and also understand that like you have incredible experience that's really valuable to a high school student. You're going through college, you have ideas about what courses are useful to take, how to go about the process, and that's information that is really valued and you should know that um, and be appreciated. And so I think that's definitely number one. And then for undergraduate students, they are able to participate in our public webinar series this fall. So we're focused on election security and disinformation, which we've been focused on through the spring and it's becoming increasingly relevant in ways I don't think anyone really anticipated. Uh, and so there we have one on October 19th with presidential transitions and November 2nd um, about post-election resilience. That should be really interesting and I'm also very excited to hear what they have to say about that. Uh, so those are definitely the ways to get involved. Email me, I'm happy to talk about it more. So yeah, we're kind of getting close to the end of the time. So I really want to thank you, Erin, so much for your time today just to talk to us about nuclear policy, advanced technology, women and diversity and national security. So thank you so much again to, for coming in today to chat with me on that. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. And I, <laughs> and I also like to thank everyone that tuned in today and please make sure to follow on our SoundCloud and tune in on our next episode. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.